This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Science is on the defensive. Half of Americans reject the theory of evolution, and intelligent design campaigns are gaining ground. In his new book, Why Darwin Matters, our guest today, Michael Shermer, explains how the newest brand of creationism appeals to our predisposition to look for a designer behind life's complexity. Once an evangelical Christian and creationist, Shermer argues that intelligent design proponents are invoking a combination of bad science, political antipathy, and flawed theology. Shermer is publisher of Skeptic Magazine, executive director of the Skeptic Society, and a contributing editor and monthly columnist for Scientific American. Michael Shermer, welcome to Weekly Signals. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm fine. And, and you're uh, just inland of us in California, yes? Yeah, uh, we're up in um, the Skeptic Society has an office up here in uh, Altadena, and uh, we hold all our public events at Caltech and Pasadena, so yeah, we're nearby. Is is the dairy still around? <laughs> <laughs> different, uh, d- d- different thing entirely. Oh, it's completely. Altadena, sort of like Pasadena, but higher. <laughs> no, but I mean, they they never did have. I, I remember the dairy, and that had nothing to do with Altadena, huh? That's right. Yeah. Really? Huh? I didn't well, know that now, either. Now, now I'm 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 floored. You know? Now, <laughs> I don't know that we could go on much longer. <laughs> no wonder they call you a skeptic. <laughs> so uh, so tell us, why does Darwin matter? Well, we live in the age of Darwin in the sense that uh, this is the prevailing worldview of explaining the natural world and the biological diversity, the origins of humans. The big questions about nature are answered by Darwin. I mean, of the big three of his, of his era, Darwin, Marx, and Freud, only Darwin still continues to be taken seriously by, you know, by people in their respective fields because it, he was right. Marx and Freud were wrong. Uh, the data has not supported their theories, but uh, the data has largely supported Darwin. And although there's still vigorous debates in the biological sciences about the relative roles of, say, natural selection versus sexual selection, or what's the target of, of selection, the individual or the gene or the chromosome or the population or whatever, uh, and the rates of evolution, are they fast or slow? Those kinds of things are still debated. Uh, but, but the fact of evolution, that, that it happened, that there is dissent with modification over the last three billion years of life, and that you know, we, we are the long product of, of uh, evolutionary change from super simple cells all the way up to complex cellular organisms, uh, that, that's, it's just true. It happened. And um, and I think everybody just needs to accept that and, and work around it because the science is there. Why do you think it is that people, um, are, they find it so hard to give up a, uh, a belief in a, in a creator of all things? Well, I, I don't think you have to give up that belief, and, and I think that's part of the problem is that people have been sold a bill of goods by those who think that you have to choose. This is what I call a warfare model of science and religion, that it's a war, it's a battle, one of them's right, one of them's wrong, and you need to make a choice. And so people of faith look at that and say, well, gee, I, you know, I don't want to give up my religion. I mean, I was raised in my religion. It's my, my whole family's involved and my friends and my social circle. 
Um, you mean I have to give all that up just to accept this theory of evolution? Well, I don't care about the theory of evolution. I care about my family and friends. So, so that you know, if you're given that choice, well, sure. I mean, it's the natural inclination psychologically is to keep your friends and your family. So, but that's the wrong choice. It, it, it simply doesn't have to be that way. If you are a person of faith and you believe in a creator, what difference does it make whether the creator did his creation 10,000 years ago or 10, 10 million years ago or, or 4.5 billion years ago? It's just a bunch of zeros <laughs> after the one. It doesn't matter. And if you're a believer and a person of faith and believe in the Creator, what difference does it make whether God used, you know, some spoken word or he used RNA to create DNA or he used gravity or electromagnetism, the forces of nature? He used principles of self-organized complexity to create complex cells. What? It doesn't matter how God did it if you're a person of faith. And to that extent, science is the best tool ever developed for understanding the creation. So if you really are a creationist, you should embrace science and, and say thank you for you know showing us how amazing the Creator's works are, uh, and that's what science does. So it, I don't it, think it has to be a threat. It comes down to a belief in a particular story, doesn't it? It's sort of, it, you, you know, in a manner of speaking, you're rejecting uh, the idea of the... Uh, the Old Testament, and it's there's and and I assume that so many of the people who are of the intelligent design school are Old Testament. Uh, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, literalist. Uh, literalist. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that it, in order to reject ins- that what they would say the word of God, God told us that this is the way it happened. So how can you tell us it happens another way? Yeah, it does come down to how one wants to read the the Holy Scriptures. Um, If you insist on taking everything literally, obviously there's going to be a conflict with much of science, but but there's got to be a conflict with a lot of other things, too. I mean, just general history and and even morals. I mean, the Old Testament is fraught with just uh, terrifying, horrific stories. I mean, bizarre stories, weird stories. I mean, the whole business of Lot and his daughters and these men come to his house late at night and and Lot's got a bunch of his buddies over there along with his family, and the guys at the door say, um, we, you know, we demand that you turn over those the, your men friends to us for an evening of fun. Uh, and Lot says, oh, no, 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 those are my friends. You can't have them, but take my daughters instead. Yeah. So they yeah. take his daughters, and they basically rape them for the night. This is in the Old Testament, yeah. And, yeah. and, I mean, anybody can read this stuff. And yeah. So obviously you can't be taking that. <laughs> something well, literal. Uh, so if you're going to give that up, or even like the two creation stories in Genesis, in yeah. Genesis 1, yeah. uh, God creates Adam and Eve together at the same time out of the mud. And in Genesis 2, God creates Adam, and then a bunch of other things happen, and Adam names the animals, and he gets lonely and tells God he's lonely, and God creates Eve out of one of his ribs. Well, okay, so yeah. my so, my theologian friends tell me, well, no, of course, we don't take that literally. I mean, you have to read these metaphorically, and it's just a creation story, but the important thing is what it means. Yeah. Fine, that's I'm okay with that. But then don't tell me that the earth has to be only 10,000 years old because the Bible says so. <laughs> yeah. You can't have it both ways, so I don't think it's necessary to, to read the thing literally. That, that's the story of Lilith, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, the first woman and what happened to her. But anyway, I digress. Well, we had... <laughs> yeah. we had um, Francis Collins on a couple of weeks ago, and he yes. talked with his book, the, Lang- the Language of God. And uh, I, it doesn't sound as if there is a tremendous amount of uh, conflict between you and him, or is there? 
Well, no. Uh, I mean, for the most part, it's nice to have a, a world-class scientist on our side in the fight against the intelligent design creationists and teaching of science in school and all that. The, but the only difference I ha- have is in his insistence on two things. One, that the fine-tunedness of the universe proves that there's a God. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It, it, I, would, I would go so far as to concede that if you are already a believer in God, there are certain arguments that, that bolster your faith, and, and the fine-tunedness is, is one of them, the complexity of the universe and the laws of nature and so on. The other argument I, I disagree with him on um, is his, his reliance on what he calls, the, what C.S. Lewis called the moral law, that it seems like humans have a sense of right and wrong, and and Colin says, I, I just can't for the life of me think how a Darwinian worldview can explain the origins of the sense of right and wrong in humans, therefore God must have did it. Well, that's what um, we call the argument from personal incredulity. I, Francis Collins, can't think of how nature could have created this, therefore supernature must have done it, a supernatural force. And that's just a, a confession of ignorance or, or a confession of I can't think of it, therefore there must be, a miracle must have happened. And that's not science, that's just personal incredulity, and that's fine, but it doesn't prove anything. And he obviously didn't read my book, <laughs> Of good and evil. I wrote a whole book about this. Yes. Science of good and evil. Yeah. It, it, evolution nicely explains the sense of right and wrong, and the moral sentiments, the feelings of guilt and and shame. And because we're a social primate species, we have to be able to cooperate. Yet we're also a very competitive group, uh, tribal species. So we have to be able to compete with other groups and tribes. And this, so Darwin explains nicely the sense of tribalism that we have. The sort of within-group amity, we like our fellow group members, we cooperate, we, we're, we're altruistic, we're nice. And yet between groups, between tribes, as we can see in the news even today, uh, you know, we're pretty nasty, bellicose, competitive, greedy, avarice. You know. So we have all of these traits, uh, good and bad. And you can call them sin if you want or good and evil, uh, whatever the term is, doesn't matter. But Darwin explains nicely how that would have come about in a social primate species like ours. We're speaking with Michael Schur. The book is Why Darwin Matters and the Case Against Intelligent Design. Yeah, I was just going to go on with Francis Collins a little bit more. Uh, he's not here to represent himself, but still, he, he did respond to us about the, the moral uh, dilemma in that uh, he said, what accounts for uh, you could see a, a complete stranger in danger, and yet you would reach out to help them. So, so somehow that explains a... Uh, uh, that, that has nothing to do with evolution, uh, because oh, well, that, you'd that, be... that, that assumes that's a pretty narrow perspective on the theory of evolution. That uh-huh. that, um, that that is entirely genetically based, and that we're only going to help those who have some uh, genetic relationship to us. But of course, we don't. We help. Um, we have what's called reciprocal altruism, or I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. Those who we don't know, but we can count on some future interaction in which I help this guy now. I, I know he'll help me later. And beyond that, what about total strangers? Okay, uh, well, it is unusual, actually, for people to help complete total strangers. And, and our society makes that possible by the fact that we have um, systems in place that create a sense of trust uh, with complete strangers. And, and that's, those systems include the rule of law, private property, uh, we're educated to respect other people's rights, and so um, mm-hmm. we don't live in that natural world way back when. We live in a, a very highly educated world that in, which, in which we're cultured to 
think of other people as our fellow in-group members, and that's been going on for the last couple hundred years, ever since the Enlightenment, which the idea is, instead of being tribal and only, I mean, this is the whole point of the New Testament morality over the Old Testament morality. When the Old Testament said, love thy neighbor, it really meant your immediate in-group, not those creeps and bastards on the other side of the river who are are our group members, which is how the Old Testament sees it, but the New Testament says, no, expand the circle to include everyone in humanity. And of course, all the way up until recently, we were not all encompassing. I mean, blacks were not included in the circle, women were not included in the circle, other minorities weren't, other people, peoples of other cultures were not considered part of the circle. But in the last, oh, just think of the last 50 years how far we've come. That, you know, women should have the vote, uh, blacks should get equal treatment, and so on. All that is pretty recent. And so the idea that, you know, we naturally em- embrace complete strangers is, is completely false. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a very new concept. It is a new concept. And it, it, is that an inevitability of evolution or of a, of a no, social evolution? No, it's not. It, uh, is it a social evolution? Is yeah, that a, it's it, social evolution. It requires vigilance, eternal, it, you know, it, yeah. the vigilance, the eternal watchword of freedom. It's true. It, just think of, gosh, in, in the 1940s and 1950s, the, the language people used to describe, say, blacks. Uh, I mean, the N-word was just only recently, just in the last maybe 25 years, yeah. became a pariah to, you know, a pariah to use that. Um, all, all that's pretty recent and has taken the work of the whole civil rights movement, people like Mar- Martin Luther King Jr., who just stood up and said, no more, we're not going to take it anymore. And yeah. it took decades to fight that. It, the natural inclination is for people to be tribal and to treat others that are different from us in, in a very subservient way. That's the natural inclination. And it isn't guaranteed that uh, society will move toward ever greater levels of freedom and prosperity for other people. That takes some effort. And unfortunately, to see kind of the backsliding here in the United States, which is in many ways a leader in this kind of social evolution, to see that is very upsetting to me because most of the rest of the world does not have this kind of social evolutionary perspective on treating people and women and the rest of it. The theocracies, of course, don't. Um, Yeah. But if we look at the bigger picture, say the last 500 years, it it is much better than it used to be. There's. Uh, I mean, there's several dozen um, what we w- we would call liberal democracies or developed democracies right. in right. which they have a constitutional a constitutional guarantee of rights and uh, the the people have something to say about the rulers and the rule of law and and that's much better than it used to be. There only yeah. used to be a handful of democracies and yeah. so in the long run, I think things are getting better. But it's I think it's one of these two steps forward, one step back, and it's going to take you know like another five hundred or thousand years. Right. Uh, to get the spread of democracy global. I mean, it's just, it, there's a lot of resistance to it on the part of, no one wants to give up power. This is the problem. So any theocracy where you have somebody or a small handful of guys with power, and it usually is guys, unfortunately, um, then they're not going to give it up. They're, you know, I mean, I often think, why can't these, country, these poor countries look at the United States and go, okay, you know, look how much money they have, look how much freedom, and we're going to do that. But then somebody must say, uh, sir, that means you're going to have to step down. Yeah. Oh, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not That's... giving that up. <laughs> well, yes, we're speaking with Michael Shermer. Uh, the book is Why Darwin Matters. It uh, just came out. Um, yep, it came uh, out yeah, last week. Last week. And um, let, let's go through the intelligent design. Let's run down a couple of the sort of the the, uh, the big hitter uh, arguments uh, of intelligent design, and let's see if we can kind of knock them out of the park here. What would you say is their primary sort of when they talk about it, what is the first thing that they'll bring up in terms of proof that there is an intelligent design? 
Oh, well, um, the, the best arguments they have, there's three of them. One is the uh, fine-tunedness, the so-called anthropic principle that um, the, the, the universe is, has certain structures to the laws of nature such that if it was slightly different, um, we wouldn't be here. And uh, so, of course, trivially, this is true in the sense that um, uh, the fact that we're here shows that the universe had to be this way or else we wouldn't be here. And there are complex, and there are very many complex (laughs) systems. Well, obviously that's the case. But they go a step further and say, no, it it was actually brought about by a designer, that a complex design that looks designed implies a designer. Well, then that's true to a certain extent. I'll, I'll concede the design argument uh, for a moment, but ask then who or what is the designer? Is it a top-down intelligent designer or a bottom-up natural designer? And, of course, Darwin's answer to this, and he was right, is that it's a bottom-up designer. We're not used to thinking of bottom-up design, but if you think about it, actually there's good examples of this. The economy is a complex system that looks designed, but no one designed it. There's no, there's no one in Washington, D.C. that could possibly set every price of every product and service around the country every day you know just 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 take one single airline online there's something like 50,000 price changes per hour per day on just a single airline uh, there's no there's no central designer that could ever do that it's just a bunch of people trying to make a living trying to make a profit trying to survive and out of that comes this complex system and that's what life is like <laughs> it looks like it's some complex top down thing but it is it isn't so that's my answer to that. Mm-hmm. Is you know, and we have a good good theories now about explaining how complex design comes about naturally, and mm-hmm. so I talk about that in the book. Um, they have this notion of irreducible complexity that that a system with X number of components to it, and if you took one of the components out, the whole thing would collapse. It wouldn't work anymore. Then uh, they use certain examples of this. Well, it, it just the examples they use are just not true. The eye, for example, oh, if you just took out one part of the amazingly complex human eye, it would work. No, baloney. You know, some vision is better than none, mm-hmm. and people that lose part of their retina or they have this problem or that problem can still see partially, and they, believe me, they'd rather have partial vision than no vision, and people develop up incredible, incredibly good strategies to work around those kinds of problems. Uh, flight, you know, this e- either the wings were fully developed in, in instantly for flight or they, uh, they couldn't have come about. Well, that's not true. There's lots of examples in nature today of, like, flying squirrels, for example. They don't fly. They glide. Uh, flying fish, they don't fly, really. They, they sort of float and then hover above the water, flapping their little uh, wings, so to speak. And, and uh, wings could have evolved for other purposes, like, thermodynamic regulation, heat retention, um, and then later were co-opted for flight. So, in other words, something evolved for purpose X, but was later co-opted for purpose Y that we see today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we have, and I go through all these yeah, point yeah. by point in the book, uh, we have good explanations. Well, and Michael Shermer, the, I'll say it again, the book is Why Darwin Matters. What sort of right. what sort of political agenda is being served? Is that part of what the intelligent design... Uh, um, arguments are about it. They, there, is there some kind of uh, political? Yeah, agenda? I think it's pretty clear. And yeah. in the book, I, I use their own words yeah. uh, that they've stated publicly, uh, in which, yeah, they do have this agenda of uh, essentially breaking down the wall, separating church and state. They would like to have a form of theocracy, a Christian nation, and uh, that, that they say they state in their own words that's what they want. They feel America would be a better place with a, you know, with with the Constitution being based on uh, Christian values. And my argument, my fundamental argument against that is that once you set up a system in which it's legal 
for the dominant religion to impose its values on everybody else. That sounds good if you are a member of the dominant religion. If you're not, it doesn't sound so good. But, of course, most Americans are, are Christians, so they would tend to lean toward that. But just think about it for a moment. If you set that up legally, what if, say, in 50 years or 100 years, uh, Islam is the dominant religion in the country? Now, it doesn't seem like it could be here, but that's where they're going in Europe, for example. It, it could happen. Um, you still want those laws in place? What if Islam is the dominant religion of America and suddenly... Mm-hmm. Women had to wear burqas, and girls uh, finished their education at sixth grade and were not allowed to read books anymore. You still want those laws on the books that says it's okay for the dominant religion to impose its values on everyone else? <laughs> no way! And and there's so much evidence to suggest, overwhelming evidence to suggest, that the Founding Fathers completely and totally understood this idea and and that's why these uh, these safeguards were put in place in the Constitution. Yeah, those guys, I have to say, man, they were smart. <laughs> and they were at the right place at the right time in a new country for the experiment to be run, and they did it right. Uh, they, yeah. Do you have any uh, uh, concern that that uh, Darwinism is is not going to be taught in our schools? Uh, how oh, close yeah. to that is or is is it close to a reality at all? Oh, yeah, not legally, but de facto what happens because of the the controversy is teachers just quit teaching it entirely because they don't want to deal with parents and upset students and administrators that put pressure on them, so they just drop it. They don't teach creationism or intelligent design. They just don't teach evolution. And so the the crime, the harm here is that students are getting an improper education or no education. And, and the single most important theory in all of biological sciences yeah. and, and one of the half dozen most important theories in all of science and probably culture as well is the theory of evolution. And yet students are learning nothing about it. When I was a creationist, I, I thought I understood evolution because I, I read what the creationist told me it was. And then when I actually took a course in it, I remember sitting there slack-jawed going, oh, my God, this is, like, real. I mean, this is anything. There's nothing like what they said it was. So I was sold a bill of goods, and, and that is, in fact, what's happening, is that so many Americans simply read or hear what, what their theologians or their ministers or the, the creationists tell them evolution is, and they're, told, and they're given this sort of cardboard cutout version of the theory, which sounds idiotic. Uh, what moron would believe that, you know, a complete random chance would produce a Boeing 747 jet in a warehouse of parts? Well, that's ridiculous. That's idiotic. Of course, no evolutionist would make that argument, because that isn't what evolution is. It's not random. <laughs> it's yeah. very directional. And, uh, but, but in any case, you know, that's the problem, is students are given a false version or no version. Do you think there's a place anywhere in our schools for creationism? Oh, I'm completely comfortable with the whole uh, debate being discussed in current events classes and history classes. Even at the beginning of a science class, say in the section on biology dealing with evolution, you can say, hey, there's this really interesting debate that's been going on ever since uh, Darwin published it for over a century. People have thought X, but in fact, this is the response. You can go through the court cases. It's interesting culturally. There's no science to be taught. This is the problem, and even the intelligent design creationists admit, well, no, we don't have any science, really. Uh, that, that 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 isn't there yet, but we we just want a, a place at the table. But so you can t- talk about that as a cultural controversy, and it's interesting in that respect. Well, that in and of itself, what you just said is is very very damning argument, which is okay. Give us some science. I mean, you know, intelligent design people, give us something. And the fact is that there isn't. 
There isn't anything yeah, other than saying, uh, okay, uh, you have a place at the table. In fact, you have a place in public uh, science classrooms. Go ahead. What are you going to teach? Yeah. And, you know, all they have is, well, the, the argument from personal incredulity. Well, I can't think of how Darwin could explain X, therefore X must be, you know, supernaturally uh, created. Okay? Yeah. But now what? <laughs> so, you, you know, it's a science class. You've got a lab. You've got a bunch of students there ready to learn something. What, you know, all you're going to do is say, I... I, you know, Joe Smith, biology teacher, can't think of what the explanation is. Therefore, I'm just going to tell you to to say God did it. That's God not did. science. Yeah. It is part of a kind of a, a, a bigger cultural uh, issue that I see, which is this, this, I don't know what it is, but it, it, it won't, it doesn't matter that I don't know it. It's sort of this no, no nothing uh, attitude, you know, it's God's will or some crazy thing <laughs> like that. And it's not just science, it's politics. It's a whole lot of other yeah. fields. Yeah, do you think, it's an amazing think, lack of, of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think laziness plays a role in this at all? Easiness? Lazy. Just plain lazy. That oh, people laziness. really. Oh, yeah, in the sense of, I'm going to quit thinking about it now. Yeah. yeah, I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, aren't you curious to know how God did it? If you think God created the bacterial flagellum and, or the <laughs> eye or whatever, don't you yeah. want to know how she did it? It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a magic wand. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, this... I'm sorry, we're we're running out of time here, Michael. I just want to just it, it just your book indicates just what a towering figure Charles Darwin was and is today. How his work has resonated, how important it is that we we maintain what with the the knowledge that we have and expand on it. Yep. All right. <laughs> Michael Shermer, the book is Why Darwin Matters: The Case Against Intelligent Design. Thank you for being on Weekly Signal. Oh, thanks for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.